Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they do not sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. And how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. Neither, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, But if God so clothed the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom." 
Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, you're telling this parable, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if, the servant, but if that servant says to himself, Oh, my master is delayed in coming and, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what he, de- and did what he deserved, sorry, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given Of him, much will be required, and from him to whom they are entrusted, much they will demand the more. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For, for from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and her daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west and you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens, and when you see the south wind blowing, and you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? And as you go to your, to your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And there were some present at the very time who, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that was a lot to take in. And I could probably just say the benediction and we could be done. But I'm going to venture to try to explain this. And, and, and there's a reason why I've kept this entire passage together. I do believe that, that it all goes together, that the leaven of the Pharisees that's been infecting the Jewish people and the people of God at that time is also related to the fig tree who has one more, one more year to bear fruit or it'll be cut down. And why is the fig tree not bearing fruit? Well, one of the primary reasons is because it has been infected with the leaven of the Pharisees. And that leaven is hypocrisy. Now, everyone says they hate hypocrisy, right? You've never, you've never come across someone who goes, you know what I really want to be? When I grow up, I want to be a hypocrite. That doesn't be so much fun. No, you, you never heard anyone say that before. Everyone says, oh, I, I hate hypocrisy. I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. We're all very concerned, and particularly Christians are concerned about not being perceived as hypocrites. And in one sense, this is not a wrong thing. Je- Jesus clearly doesn't like it either, we see in this passage. Jesus has, had just warned us, if you remember, uh, before Easter, as we were finishing chapter 11, Jesus warned the Pharisees and the teachers about their hypocrisy, the way in which they were presenting themselves in one way for an alter- with an, alterative, an ulterior motive. And today, Jesus builds on that, and he warns others. He warns his disciples first, and then the crowds at large to avoid that hypocrisy. My guess is that every person in this room does not want to be a hypocrite. And I think most often I've heard Christians say they don't want to be a hypocrite because they don't want to be a bad witness for Christ to unbelievers. That's the reasoning. I don't want to be a bad witness for Christ Being a hypocrite's a bad witness, so I don't want to be a hypocrite. And that may be true, that hypocrisy is a bad witness to Christ. But it's actually not Jesus' reason for avoiding hypocrisy. That's actually not Jesus' reason. And actually, I might even venture to suggest that that motivation may actually take you one step closer to hypocrisy rather than one step farther away. In order to understand, we need to define hypocrisy. A good definition of hypocrisy might be something like this, to create a public impression that's intentionally at odds 
with one's real purposes or motives, to create a public impression that's intentionally at odds with one's real purposes or motives. It's play-acting with the intention of disguising your true purpose. Its concern is other people's judgment of you and then how to manipulate those judgments through your own behavior in such a way that it leads people to believe you have one purpose when you really have another. I want to be right before God when really I want to be right before you. I want to look this way or I, I want to be this or, or whatever, but really I want to just look that way. I want you to think a certain thing about me. Or in the, in, in, for the Pharisees and the lawyers, I want to, be, to look like I'm right and righteous because actually my desire is the applause of people, the position of authority, the way in which it enriches me. But in order to have this, I have to pretend, I have to cause everyone to believe I'm that. That is hypocrisy. So if our primary concern is that an unbelieving world not see us as hypocrites, we are actually in danger of manipulating our behavior to appear unhypocritical when that, in fact, would be hypocritical. You see what I'm saying? To look good for the affirmation of people and to maintain a position in their lives through that sounds a lot like Pharisees, does it not? On the other hand, do we go along with what the world says and we pretend and just pretend that all kinds of judgments don't matter? Anyone's judgment doesn't matter, and there's nothing that is wrong. Which, which ironically, if you think about it, is a judgment. If I say judging someone is wrong, period, that is a judgment. So it doesn't work. It's self-defeating. But some will say, well, Christians are too judgy. They care too much about judgment. They, they think too much about judgment. They talk too much about judgment. People don't like that. So if, if we were to make a list of the top five reasons people don't like Christians, I think hypocrisy might be one, two, and three, and judgment might be four and five. But ironically, what Jesus says here is that in order to avoid hypocrisy, the best thing you can do is actually to focus on judgment. The way in which to kill hypocrisy in your life is to understand judgment rightly. Understanding judgment kills hypocrisy. It's the point I want you to get today. And I think that's the point that Jesus is making in this section. You want to get rid of the leaven of hypocrisy that infects and permeates your life from your heart all the way through to every aspect? Turn your eyes to judgment and understand it rightly, and it'll weed it out. And there's three questions I, I think we need to inquire into about judgment that will help us to kill hypocrisy. These three questions are this, who will judge me? What will I be judged by, and when will I be judged? 
Who will judge me? What will I be judged by? And when will I be judged? The first question, whose judgment matters or who will judge me? Look at that. I, I changed the question while I was writing it. Whose judgment matters? We'll go with that. Hypocrisy is like leaven, Jesus says. You don't see it at first. It's in the heart, but it permeates everything eventually. It infects every area of a person. It affects every area of our life. But Jesus says there's a judgment coming. And the things that are hidden in your heart, the things that are hidden in the nooks and crannies of your life, they will be revealed. The things that you speak in secret, they will be made known to all. This judge, the one whose judgment matters, is one who knows all, and not only knows all, but will reveal all. Come on, you thought, you thought that the, the government spying on your, uh, your computer usage or whatever was a bad deal. That's the least of your worries. That judge... The one whose judgment matters will judge according to the, not that knowledge. And listen, that seems scary to us at first, does it not? It, and when you first say that, you go, oh, that's, that's kind of frightening. But what I want you to see is it comes with wonderful promises as well, gracious promises. And so as we answer this question, I want you to look in, in, in verses 4 through 12, and we see that Jesus uses two illustrations, each of which includes a, a godly practice, if you will, something that... that uh, Jesus says, do this thing, but it also includes God's promise. God does this. Do this thing, but God does this. All right, in verses 4 through 7, there's a comparison. Who is to be feared? Should we fear those who kill the body and then can do nothing else? Or should we kill those who can kill the body and then cast us into hell as well? The answer, of course, it's, it's, it's a sort of illustration that's supposed to be like a, well, duh, kind of thing. The, the answer, of course, is the one who has the power over the body and the soul. But Jesus takes this illustration and he makes it even more direct, even more tangible in verses 8 through 12. Remember, Luke is writing to Christians who are experiencing precisely what Jesus is describing in verses 8 through 12. They are, because of their confession of Christ, being dragged in front of the rulers of the synagogue, the Pharisees, the lawyers, right? These men whose hearts are, and lives are filled with the leaven of hypocrisy. And they're being judged by them. And they're being persecuted and they're being thrown in prison. And here's Jesus' point. Listen, if it's God and not man who has this greater power over you, this greater power to judge you, he's not denying that people may judge them and may judge them rightly or wrongly, may, may punish them in some way, but if, but if God has this greater power, this greater authority, then whose judgment matters most? Those who judge you on earth before men? Or, those, or the one who judges you at the right hand of God on high before the angels of heaven? Whose judgment 
matters. Whose judgment matters? The one who looks at your actions and judges you by what they think is right and wrong in your actions, or the one who looks into your soul and into your heart and knows it perfectly and stands at the right hand of God before the angels and says, yes, that is what's going on. Let me reveal what no one else can see. In light of that, what should we do? First thing that we're told to do is fear God. Fear God. You know, we overemphasize a certain kind of love that God portrays, a friendly or even a romantic love, to the disregard of the fatherly love that God has for us. And a fatherly love is a, a different kind of love, is it not? It's an authoritative love. It's a love that corrects. It's a love with power. It's a love that has the strength to punish us, but also the strength to protect us. It's a love that we need. Perhaps we struggle with all of this because we think of authorities that we've had who have misused this kind of power, parents who didn't actually love their kids, and use that power in unloving ways. But listen, Jesus gives us a promise here as well. It's not just fear God, but, it, but the promise is this. He values you. Do you not know? He, he values you. God uses his power to remember every sparrow that lives on the face of the world. He has the power to do so. He could name each one of them right now. And listen, what does this say? He doesn't just know you. He has counted every hair on your head. You're more valuable than many sparrows. Evil people may cause us pain. We may be wronged, so on, so forth. And that may tempt us to be hypocritical, to give off an image that's not actually true to what's going on in our heart in order to gain better judgment from those around us, to give in to something even though we know we ought not to do so. Jesus is essentially saying this, who values you enough to keep you eternally? Do they value you that much? Does the person in your life that you're so concerned about how they perceive you, do they value you this much? That ought to kill the hypocrisy in our hearts. The second godly practice is this, confess Christ. So fear God and confess Christ. Jesus makes it clear, don't deny me or I'll deny you. That is a very straightforward statement. Now you think to yourself, oh, I would never deny Jesus. But we need to remember that, that any denial of Jesus' teaching is functionally a denial of Jesus. If you deny God's word, the word which he says is me in the flesh, I'm the word in the flesh. If you deny God's word before men, you're denying Christ. If you know God's word says it and you say, ooh, that's not, that's kind of uh, politically incorrect today. That's not very socially acceptable. People will kind of criticize that. They think that's bad. 
maybe I'll just, you know, God won't care if I just kind of skip over that part, if I, if I think something different. I don't really want Christ to skip over any parts of his gospel when he's judging me. I'd like to keep all those. Listen, if you're willing to fudge what he says to get off uh, someone off your back or to stay in someone's good graces, that is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. No doubt, for Luke's readers, the reality of this was a real and constant pressure. Uh, someone could have been reading, Theophilus could have been reading this, and Paul is running around throwing people in prison. But God values you, and he's given us a promise as well. He says this, God's promise is this, he will be present with you. Not only does he value you, but he'll be actually with you. Jesus says he'll give the Holy Spirit to guide our, our words and our actions. As one commentator put it, rather than speaking against the Spirit, they will be ready to speak through the Spirit. You can expect God to be with you. At, listen, at times I've been in situations where I felt like I, I didn't know what to say. Can I say what God's Word says? If I say it, will I say it the right way? What will this person think? How will they react? And I've, been in, I've come out of situations where I thought afterwards, how did I just totally blow that? I shouldn't have said that. I should have said this. And yet, do we trust that the Holy Spirit is really, truly with us? That even if we perceive what we said to, to lacked in some sense, that the Holy Spirit guided our words and that the Holy Spirit can use our words, flawed as they may be, for his glory and for God's good and for the good of people. What a sweet promise that God is with us, guiding us. Why, why would we care more about the judgments of people who will leave us behind, who will toss us to the side that quick when we have a God who sends his spirit to live in us? Does that make any sense? Let that kill the hypocrisy in your heart. But it's not just whose judgment matters, it's, it's also what we will be judged by. Judgment is not only about whose opinion of us we prioritize, but it's also about what things we prioritize in our lives. And so this is the next question. The setup is this. A man asks a question about inheritance. He wants to see if Jesus can decide this case to judge it for him. And Jesus interestingly says, who made me judge over you? Now that's ironic, is it not? Because this whole section is about the fact that Jesus is the judge over them. His point isn't that he is not the judge. His point is, I don't judge about over that. What you're asking me to judge over is not the parameters for my judgment. It's not a question of who will judge here. It's a question of what he judges. The man is concerned about judging over possessions, but Jesus is judging about the man's heart. 
Jesus is judging what he can see that no one else can see, where that man's heart is. Jesus is going to make two related points in, in these two illustrations that he's going to give here. So we'll look at each of them, and, and then we'll kind of draw a big conclusion. But the first one is this, life is not about having more possessions. And the second one, similarly, life is about more than possessions. Jesus tells this parable, the man has a windfall prophet. He doesn't even have room to store all of the grain that he's gotten, so he goes to great effort to build bigger barns to store all of his stuff. And then this is the critical piece, this is the critical part of the story that I want you to, to see. He says to his soul, it says, soul, you're good and secure. Yeah, soul, it's this biblical word that also is often translated life. You know, when Jesus says, whoever tries to gain his life will lose it, he's saying whoever, it's the same word, whoever tries to gain his soul will lose it. Fool, Jesus says, your soul is required of you. These things will do nothing to help you. The problem is not necessarily in the building of bigger barns. It's in the trusting of what's in those barns for his soul rather than what he ought to trust in. That's the problem. He looks at what's in his barns and he says, look, because of that soul, you are secure. We're good. But he's not. Life is not about having more possessions. So what then is the right heart attitude? Well, the godly practice here is this. Be rich towards God. Your soul isn't helped by being rich to yourself, but toward God. Not, not that being rich towards God somehow merits you salvation. That's not what, what I'm saying. But it reflects a heart that puts its trust in God rather than putting its trust in stuff. Being rich towards God reflects a heart that's trusting not in what's in their barns, but in what Christ has done for them instead. Your primary driver isn't how much can I have, but how much can I give rightly as God is asking me to give. As he has given to me. But he continues in the same vein. Turning to his disciples, he explains further, don't be anxious, he says. Don't be anxious. Now, we could do a whole series of sermons on just this, right? This is a huge issue today, and we don't have time because y'all are anxious about what you're going to eat for lunch. We'll get to that. No, I'm just joking. Um, anxiety, listen, anxiety is a sure sign of spiritual sickness. I want, I, I want you to understand this. Anxiety is a sure sign of spiritual sickness. If you are anxious, you have a spiritual sickness that needs cured. And there could be a lot of things that go into your anxiety, but I promise you, one of them, and probably the primary thing, is a spiritual problem, not a physical problem or a mental problem or a relational problem or any other. It's a spiritual problem. That's what Jesus says. If you are anxious... and you are only or primarily thinking the problem is outside of you, I'm anxious because these things out here are an issue, then you're misguided. 
Because Jesus says, no, the problem actually, the primary problem, now you may have a lot of issues out here that are squeezing that anxiety out, but the anxiety didn't come from out here, it comes from in here. Those situations are only squeezing the toothpaste tube. The anxiety was always inside. Jesus puts the problem in your heart. There may be an, listen, as I said, there may be adjacent issues outside of you that are causing that to come out. But the fundamental issue is this. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Do you really believe God? Do you really trust Christ that what you need, he'll give? Do you really trust Christ that that problem that's causing you anxiety is not just a problem, but it's what he's using to sanctify you, that he can actually take that and use it for your good? Listen, life is about more than possessions. And I'm using the term possessions, listen, I'm not using it just to mean money or, 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 or particular things, but, but to refer to all the things of the world. It's stuff, but also it's situations. If you're anxious, the first question that you should be asking yourself is not how can I change this circumstance, but God, how can you, would you change my heart? Jesus gives us three reasons why we have no business being anxious. First, God feeds birds and we're, we've already established he values us more, right? We've established that fact. Second, worrying doesn't add to your life, not even one hour. And if it, if it can't do just such a small thing, listen, Jesus says that's a small thing. Adding an hour to your life is a small thing, Jesus says. In his perception, that's a small thing. That's a miraculous thing for me. If you can't do just such a small thing as an hour, add an hour to your life, then, then what benefit is worrying? Third reason, God cares for flowers and grass. For flowers and grass. Will he not care for you? Will you not have faith in him and his promises? So we're worried about getting these temporal things, just like the rest of the world worries about getting temporal things. Stuff that is simple to God, that God just does without even a moment's thought, right? And, 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 and you're, missing, you're missing, then, the truly remarkable things God gives. That's the problem. That's the biggest problem with anxiety, right? Because anxiety causes you to fixate on the things of the world so that your eyes and your heart are not fixated on Christ. That's why Satan uses it and is using it as such a powerful tool. Instead of seeking the things of the kingdom, we seek the things of the world. And this is the issue for the Pharisees, the, the applause of people, the enrichment of their wallets, the wielding of authority. All these things are things that they sought after. And then they presumed that because they had those things, they had the kingdom as well. 
But that was the very reason they were missing the kingdom. They presumed that because they were so blessed in their life, they must be on the right side with God. But that was actually, their pursuit of those things was actually what was causing them to miss God in the first place. And so what God says, the godly practice here is to seek God's kingdom. Seek his kingdom first and foremost. He will give you what you need and you'll have greater things. Do you really believe that what God is giving you is right now is better than the earthly things that you wish you had that are causing you so much anxiety? Do we really trust in God's sovereignty that he has you exactly where he wants you to teach you exactly what you need to know for your good, for your good? And he knows better what your good is than you know what your good is. God's promise is this, it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do you get that? It's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's not stingy. He wants to give it to you. It gives him pleasure and joy to give that to you. He's not like, oh, you know, I, my, wife, uh, my wife for our anniversary bought me a three pound, seven ounce jar of peanut butter M&Ms. I love peanut butter M&Ms. I've just been slowly working them down, you know? And my kids will come over and they'll look at it, you know? Hey, Dad, can I have a peanut butter M&M? No, they're my peanut butter M&Ms. Thank you very much. I want some more tomorrow and after that and the day after that. God's not stingy with his kingdom. I'm stingy with my peanut butter M&M's, you better believe. They ask for them, I might give them one. Who eats one M&M, right? My kids, because that's all I give them. God's not stingy with his kingdom. God knows what you need. You don't have to be worried. You will have treasure in heaven. Do you really believe that what you will have in heaven is better than whatever you're wanting here on earth? Do you really believe that's a good trade? How many of us would would be willing to break the most basic biblical commands? Tell a little lie to get some applause. Fudge a little number to get a promotion. Deny a little truth to keep a friend. Every time we do that, Jesus wants us to see that we are trading our everlasting soul for a bit of something that we are going to lose anyway. What in your life will be judged? It's your heart, not your possessions. It's your heart not the things of this world. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The one whose treasure is in an insecure place, like the man in his barns, his soul is in an insecure place. But the one whose treasure is in a secure place will have a heart that is in a secure place. Right now. Judgment is not only what about whose opinions of us we are prioritizing. It's not only about what things we prioritize in life, but it's also that we would prioritize getting and keeping them straight right now. And so we have to ask the question, when will you be judged? When will you be judged? Before we jump into this last section, 
I want to preface something. There are some, uh, uh, there's some who see this phrase that's coming up here in verse 40. Make sure I'm actually citing the right verse. Yeah, verse 40. And they see this phrase, the Son of Man is coming. And they immediately assume that this sounds like the final judgment, the, the, the great white throne judgment at the end of all things, right? It must be future to us, not just future to Luke's original audience, but us as well. But I'm going to contend that that is not what is intended in that phrase in this passage, and that this entire passage is talking more directly about things that are going to happen in the time of that generation that Jesus is speaking to, in the time of his disciples, in the time of these Pharisees. First, because while the coming of the Son of Man of God, the Son of Man or God, is a picture of God's judgment throughout the Bible, it's not always necessarily a picture of the final judgment. It can also be a picture of a, of a judgment of a particular people or city or nation. At different times in Scripture, it says that God's judgment is coming, that God is coming in judgment over, and it's specific to a particular time and place. Second, Everything in the context of this chapter, in this passage, everything in the immediate context so far, and I trust that you'll see that everything in the context right afterwards is about that generation. When those Pharisees were alive and their leaven was permeating, when those disciples would be brought before those Pharisees and whether they would confess Christ or not, it's the fire, as we'll see, that relates to his first coming, verse 51, It's about the present time of that generation, verse 56. And it's about this period of time, this extra year that the fig tree gets before it's chopped down. In other words, what I'm saying is that there is a judgment that is is coming upon the Jewish people that, that we know historically happened in AD 70 when Jerusalem was sieged, when the temple was destroyed, when all of the sacrificial system, the Levitical system, ceased to exist because the, the parameter, the, 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 the things that, that, that caused them to be able to do that were all destroyed. And for 2,000 years, it has not come back. That God's final judgment on that, on those people, happened. At that time. Now, does this take away from the imminency of considering Christ's judgment on us? And I hope you see that it doesn't take away from it at all, but it actually adds to it. It adds to it because if Jesus really did come in judgment on them as he said he would, then you can believe that he really will come on judgment in judgment on you. That if Jesus really did do this thing that he said he was going to do, it really did happen then you, could, you better bet that someday you're going to die and you will become before Christ in judgment. That someday Christ will return once and for all, finally, and every single person, every single person who has ever lived will stand before him in judgment. So what should we do then? If this is true, that Christ really will judge us, according to what's in our hearts, and, and we better believe that it's going to happen. What should we do? The first thing we should do is this, be ready. We see this in verses 35 through 40. All right, I've been going at it for a little bit, but I don't want to lose you at this point. 
I don't want to lose you at this point in the sermon because this right here is where the rubber meets the road. These next few illustrations are where the rubber really meets the road for us. The first thing, verses 35 through 40, be ready. We see we need to be ready for action right now. It says stay dressed for action. That, in that time, uh, you know, the people, the men would wear robes, right? These, these robes. And so you'd be going around with the robes and whatever. But if you were going to do work, you couldn't have this, or you were going to need to run. You couldn't have this robe all flipping around, whatever you women know, what that's like with, you know, when you wear a dress and you're trying to do something, it's in the way. And so what they would do is they'd keep a belt with them, the sash, and, and when they needed to do work, wherever they were, they would use that sash to tie that thing up so that it was out of the way, and then they could do whatever work they needed to do. And what he's saying is, no, you need to be like that. You need to be ready. Have that sucker tied up all the time, ready to go. Keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return this picture. It's... it's uh, the wedding feasts in that time would be, sometimes be days long, a week long. You didn't know how long it would be. And so if the master of the house left to go to a wedding feast, he went to a different town for a wedding, his relative, his friend, or whatever, he might be gone three days, he might be gone seven days. You don't know. You're a servant left behind taking care of the house. You need to be ready when the master returned. Why would you need to be ready? Well, People would usually travel in the evening or at night when it was cooler. And so they might come into the town after dark. And they come up to the house, they travel in packs, right, for safety, but then when you get to the town, everyone disperses to their different houses, and that was the time in which you were at most at risk of being mugged. And so you'd come up to your house and you'd knock on the door, hey, servants, let me in. And right there, that's when you were going to get jumped. But if the servants had the house lit up, the lights are on, they're ready, ready to open the door as soon as the master knocks on the door. Very little chance. But if the master's sitting there knocking, hey, wake up, wake up, let me in. The master's at risk. And so it says, well, you know, if you're the servants, the good servants are ready. Second watch, third watch, it's 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. All night, they're waiting, they're waiting for the, the master to come home. They're ready for action. And then he switches the illustration slightly. He says, if you know when a thief is coming, you'll be ready. You'll have the house locked up, defended, ready to go. Listen, you don't know when judgment, the judgment of the Son of Man will come. You don't know when this might be the last sermon that you ever hear. The last time you ever hear the word of God preached. You don't know. That's reality. We forget it because we come week in, week out. We forget it because I've never died in between two Sundays before. Right? I'm on, I'm on a streak right now. Every day I beat my streak of days I've been alive. But the time will come and you don't know. Are you ready? How can you be ready? How can we be ready? Be ready, but also be faithful. That's how we can be ready. When you see this in verses 41 through 53, Jesus asks, uh, Peter asks Jesus, is this for us, the disciples, or is this for everyone? And Jesus, in his own way, he doesn't actually answer the question directly, does he? Instead, he tells a parable. This is just kind of what Jesus does. 
He presents this hypothetical situation. A master leaves his servants in charge of the house while he's gone. And there are four different kinds of servants described. First, there are the servants who are faithful and wise, that are about what his master has, their master has instructed them to be about the whole time. They're faithful. They're ready because they're always faithful. And the promise is that these will be, stu- you know, will give, be given stewardship of all the master's possessions. In this new kingdom that Jesus is bringing in, he's looking for faithful servants to steward his kingdom. Not like the unfaithful Pharisees before. But what happens to these other servants? There are those, there are those who think, ah, it's been a while. They're the Pharisees who think, you know, in the Old Testament, God, the prophet said that the Son of Man would come and, you know, it's been a few hundred years. He hasn't come yet. We'll just do our own thing. It'll be fine. And so they get drunk. They beat the other servants, just as the, just as the Pharisees and the lawyers whose leaven were to avoid. At the end of chapter 11, we're told that they use their position to beat up and abuse the people of God, to lead them into the grave instead of leading them to life. And when Jesus comes in judgment, he'll cut them into pieces, it says, and put them with the unfaithful. Well, that accelerated quickly. It will be clear that they are not of God. And I think this is a stern warning to those who seek to outwardly look faithful when their hearts are not. God knows. God knows. When he comes, that'll be it. But it also seems like there's two other kinds of servants. Both are not those who use their position to beat others, but they were unfaithful nonetheless. They were not faithful to God's command. Some, it says, knew better. They knew their master's will and they disobeyed and they'll get a severe beating. Others did not know. They did not have the same level of knowledge, but yet they were unfaithful nonetheless and they will get a light beating. The point, I think, to the original audience is clear. The Pharisees, they'll be judged to the fullest extent. Yeah, they may, they may bring you in front of them today in, in Theophilus' time, in Luke's time, and judge you, and they can kill your body, but one day they will be judged fully and truly. Jesus is saying, know that if you follow their lead, you'll be judged as well. Not as severely, but depending on your knowledge. But we ought to be faithful to God by being faithful to Christ instead. And I want you to see that it's, not, it's, it's also not simply a matter of those who are in Christ are saved and those who are outside of Christ are not saved. That is true. God is just. And there are varying levels of severity here. False teachers, hypocrites who claim to be pastors and preachers for Christ, but are wolves in sheep's clothing and are leading people astray, they will have a greater punishment. 
Listen, I can, I can get on whatever social media or, or whatnot, and, and, and today you can see what people are doing all over the world, and I can watch what's happening in other churches and places where false teachers are doing false things and they're leading people astray, and I can get real bent out of shape about it. Trust me, I really can. But how comforting is it to know that God will judge all of those things rightly? He will. Listen, if I use my position as a pastor to, deceptive, to uh, deceptively gain some sort of higher position or something that I want, if I am hypocritical in that way, then, then I will be punished more severely because of my position. Additionally, ignorance is no excuse for unfaithfulness. Yet knowledge also increases guilt. All of this may sound harsh to us. We don't usually talk about Jesus in this way, but the Old Testament clearly portrays that part of the Messiah's deliverance of his people is judgment on those who've rejected God. And Jesus makes that purpose really, really clear in verses 49 through 53. He says, I will cast fire. And that's, again, typically a figure of speech for judgment. We shouldn't imagine in this, what he's talking about here is literally uh, fire consuming the earth, especially since he is tying this fire of judgment to his first coming. At the present time, he says, do you think I have come, he says, not do you think I'll come in 2,000 years to bring this fire, but do you think I've come right now, he says. And so the Jewish families of Theophilus' time are being divided. Some were staying in Judaism, rejecting Christ, and others were accepting him. And it set families against one another. And we see the same thing in our day and age today. There are things in our world that are promoted that set family members against one another because people believe them so firmly. And there's a temptation, and you see it time and time again, where people who say, no, I'm set on what the Bible says about this issue, and then as soon as their son or their daughter or their cousin or their brother or their sister suddenly flips, they flip as well. If you will not acknowledge Christ before men, he will not acknowledge you before the Father and before angels. So what then should we do? Because listen, you and I, we, we've, all, we've all screwed this up at some point, right? We've all been hypocrites at some point. We've all messed this up. We've all been unfaithful at some point in time. What should we do? The last point is this, be repentant. We see this in these last few verses. At the beginning and the end, Jesus implores them to understand the present time. His judgment is coming soon. There's just a bit more time, and the tree will be chopped down if it does not bear fruit. What is the fruit? The fruit is repentance and faith in Christ. If you're being dragged before a judge, settle accounts with your accuser before you get there. Jesus is saying, look, settle accounts with me before that time comes. That's how you get ready. Before you stand before me in judgment, settle 
accounts or you will pay every last penny. Second, we see a reference to this tragic situation where Pilate killed rebelling Galileans and mingled their blood with sacrifices. And the question seems to indicate, is it time to rise up and bring the kingdom? But Jesus says that in his response that, that the kingdom comes not by revolt, but by repentance. That's how Christ's kingdom comes. These people were failing to realize that they had offended God as well. They failed to realize that the kingdom comes through repentance to the king of kings, not revolt against some ruler of man. Listen, if you know that you've not been faithful and thus you're not ready, this this doesn't have to be the final score. Settle accounts. Repentance and faith is not just a one-time way into the kingdom. It is life in the kingdom, this side of Christ's return. Next week, we're going to look at a different kind of leaven, the leaven of God's kingdom. It's a leaven that sets straight what is crooked. It's a leaven that puts into order what is disordered. If you find disorder in your heart, crookedness in your heart, I want you to know Christ can set it straight because of what he has done on the cross, because of what he did in overcoming death and coming out of the grave. He can set it straight. Repent. Believe in him for those things. Through Christ, a way is open for the forgiveness of sins. Confess them, turn to him, trust in him alone for your soul. Acknowledge him and he will acknowledge you. Look to Christ, all of Christ. Because it's what kills the hypocrisy of our hearts.